I would recommend that you have your Bibles open at uh, page 509, the beginning of the book of Job. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, you are an awesome God. We do not understand sometimes or often the way things happen in this world. We pray that now you will work through our minds and our feelings and teach us something more about you. For your glory we pray. Amen. The Bible is a wonderful mix of different types of literature, of history, of prophecy, of wisdom and revelation, and of poetry. The first 17 books of the Old Testament trace uh, the history of Israel, their historical books, the history of Israel from its inception until the time of the prophet Malachi. And books of poetry follow on. These don't further the story of God's people, but rather delve deeply into questions about pain, about God, about wisdom, about life, and about love. And the first of the books of poetry is Job. And as Alan has said, we begin a series um, on that today. The book of Job is all about human suffering. In it, we meet a man who is afflicted physically and emotionally. We encounter friends who do their best, but make things worse. We're brought face to face with intellectual puzzles, the supremacy of God, the reality of Satan. And with all of that, we find Job struggling with his faith in God. It's a book that might well unsettle us, and it's likely to raise many questions. Maybe, uh, where on earth is God in all of this? Why do the godless seem to thrive while the innocent suffer? And what kind of God allows his people to suffer? And many more. There may be questions that you and I have already asked as we've faced our own trials or watched the suffering of others around us. Or perhaps we've struggled to make sense of our own experience of good and evil in the world. It's a long book. It's 42 chapters long. So we're going to take a bit of time over that as we wrestle with the questions and try to hold in tension our belief in the Almighty and a just God and the reality of our own experience of suffering. And I'm warning you, there won't be any easy answers. For as Job discovered, there's no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, no answer in a nutshell. As most of us learn best from reflecting on our experience rather than being just told what to do, we need to let God speak to us through both our thinking and our feelings as we immerse ourselves in this poem of lament and of argument with God over the next weeks. And like any poem, we need to read it again and again and mull over it before it begins to actually reveal some of its wisdom to us. So I recommend that you do take time 
reading it in a modern version of the Bible, to just sort of begin to let it sink into you. We don't know exactly when the book of Job was written. It could have been any time from the reign of Solomon to the exile. Neither do we know who the author was. It wasn't Job himself, but it was likely to have been an Israelite as he uses the Israelite covenant name for God, Yahweh, which you'll see is translated in our New International Version as the Lord in capital letters. The author is a creative and inspired person, and he must have had particular inspiration since the prologue, these first two chapters um, of Job, contains information that only God would know. How are we to know what happened in heaven? And the result is the book that we now have, a beautiful, crafted piece of literature with real theological significance. It's a book about suffering for people who know about suffering. I'm excited by the chance to explore it and engage with it, and I hope you will too. Alan has already set the scene in a modern version for us. But we start in chapter 1, and there are four scenes. We see, as it's already been mentioned, that uh, Job was fabulously wealthy. God had blessed him. Forget Rupert Murdoch, Sir Alan Sugar, or even the Duke of Westminster. Job was the greatest man among Eastern peoples. Look at what it says about him at the beginning of chapter 1. He feared God. He was a believer, a true worshipper. He was blameless, which doesn't mean he was perfect, but rather that he was spiritually and morally upright. He was loyal to God and straight in his dealings with others. His daily life was marked by repentance and faith. He was a wise man. And we can assume that he was middle-aged, as he has seven sons and three daughters who loved to party. They were reputed to have a great social life, each son taking his turn to host a party in his house with some celebration feasts apparently lasting as long as a week. Job was not only a moral and godly man himself, but he was concerned about the godliness of his children. To such an extent that after each bout of partying that his children had, he would regularly offer sacrifices on their behalf to cover any sins they might happen to have committed and to re-consecrate them to God. So the first two chapters form a prologue to the poem and comprise of four scenes. In scene one, we see the Lord's council chamber and we find ourselves there. God is in the chair and members of the heavenly council council gather around him for a cabinet meeting. There are angels who, under God, are entrusted with power in the universe. Among them is Satan. Who is he? Let's think about that for a minute. 
The literal translation of the word Satan is the accuser, a kind of public prosecutor. It seems that his job was to patrol the earth looking for sin. He's also called the enemy. Jesus knew the reality of Satan and warned his disciples about Satan's persecution in John 15, 20. And in Revelation 12, we have the picture of Satan as the accuser, bringing torment and distress to God's people, but finally being thrown out of heaven to earth. Earlier than that, in Zechariah's vision of heaven, he sees Jesus as the high priest, interceding for his people, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. But is Satan God's enemy? He's certainly our enemy. One thing we are to deduce from this is that Satan, the accuser, is real. He's here to wrongfoot God's people, to cause them to sin and to deny God. Returning to the council chamber, God asks for Satan's report, which he seems to sort of shrug off. But have you noticed my servant Job, God asks. It's important here to recognize that it's God who initiates Job's testing. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God. Verse 8. God's challenge to Satan is like a red rag to a bull. In one crafty move, Satan attempts to show God as a fool. He boldly accuses the man whom God commends. Satan says that Job's righteousness, in which God delights, is purely self-serving, implying that Job only follows God because God meets his needs and blesses him in every way, with wealth, with family, with possessions. Surely, says Satan, if you take away everything he has, then you'll sure see the, the true nature of the man. He'll curse you to your face. Verse 11. The accusation, once raised, cannot be removed. It hangs in the air. Okay, says God, everything he has is in your hands, but don't touch the man himself. Please note that God is still in control. Even though Satan's given power to afflict Job, he can only do so within specified limits. In other words, he's kept on a leash. But the most shocking thing to us is that God actually gives his permission for the suffering to, be, to befall Job. The story had, the teller had told us earlier that Job was blameless, and God had reiterated that in verse 8, Job doesn't deserve to suffer, and this suffering is not a punishment for any unforgiven sin in his life. 
Despite this, God says to the accuser, off you go, make Job Job suffer loss. Why? Why? Christopher Ashe says in his book, Out of the Storm About Job, the scandal is that the supreme God does give permission to Satan to cause God's blameless servant to suffer. And suffer he does. So we open now scene two, Job's first test, verses 13 to 22. So the story unfolds. It's not an Annas Horribilis, it's a Deus Horribilis. We're told how one day, during a great day, during a great party, disaster strikes. Messengers come one after another in fast succession to tell Job bad news. Boom, boom, boom. First of all, all his oxen and donkeys have been stolen by traveling merchants. All his herds of sheep are struck by lightning. All his camels are taken by Bedouins. And all his servants violently killed by terrorism or natural disaster. (sighs) Then, if that's not enough... In sweeps the fourth messenger with the horrific news that all his children had died as their house collapses in a freak storm. In one fell swoop, this fabulously wealthy, much-blessed man of God is stripped of everything. He has nothing left. The story is told powerfully with creative repetition to allow for the maximum impact on the reader. What would you do if you lost everything you valued and had worked for in one day? Your house, your car, your income, your investments, your family... The thought of it is horrendous. We can only begin to appreciate it partially when we think back to the family store in Croydon that was burnt down by the rioters last summer. Or as I watched a news item on television this week and saw the shivering, quaking fear of a young woman in Indonesia when she heard that a a tsunami siren following another earthquake... I don't think I've ever seen someone literally trembling and shaking in fear as I did in that picture. And I think it'll stay with me a long time. So how did Job react? He makes no response until he hears his children have been killed. And then he tears his robes, he shaves his head... And he falls down and worships God. He what? He worships God. Who could do such a thing? Is it humanly possible? I was born with nothing, he says, and I shall die with nothing. He didn't say, damn you, God, or use the F word like many would. But as if wrenched from the depth of his true being, he says... The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. 
May the name of the Lord be praised. It's just an amazing thing to say. Who on earth can say something like that? In my life in mission and in pastoral work, I have come across two times where that spontaneous, heart-clinching response I heard. One was hearing the testimony of a former tutor at All Nations Christian College whose husband died suddenly while they were working as missionaries in East Africa, leaving her with two very young sons. A senior missionary had to break the tragic news to her of her husband's death. And after doing so, he gently repeated these words of Job to to her. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And as she told me about it, she said, he paused there and waited for my response which eventually I said, blessed be the name of the Lord. What courage. That woman has gone on to be a means of blessing to many, many people. She's now a grandmother, and she did remarry. The other occasion concerns a young engineer, David, who was a member of my former church in Harlow. He went to All Nations too, where he met his Austrian wife, Marlena. Together, they served as missionaries with Fieber Radio in Seychelles for 10 years. David became the chief engineer, and they had two lovely children, a girl, Anne-Marie, and a boy called James. At the end of their term of service, Marlena returned to Austria ahead of David to settle their children into school. One afternoon, as Marlena was collecting six-year-old James from school, he was run over by a truck on a pedestrian crossing and killed. The accident was simply awful. Later, I learned that Marlena immediately knelt in the road and prayed over James. The other mothers coming from school were also deeply shocked at the accident. But they were heard to say, who is this? How can she do this? How can she pray at a time like this? What courage, what grace. I met up with David and Marlena some months later. Marlena seemed to have aged 10 years. Yet, while their hearts were torn in two by their loss, their testimony of God's love and grace was vibrant. And they continue to serve the Lord in Christian broadcasting today. I shall never forget those two remarkable responses of Christians to human tragedy. Nothing will bring back their loved ones. But the question remains, why? Why 
when they have given up their lives to serve God, should this happen to them? How can we presume to know the mind of God? Job was blameless and feared God. He lost everything, yet he still trusted God. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, we turn to scene 3. And we're back in God's council chamber. And in the first three verses there in chapter 2, we see the storyteller repeating the opening scene almost word for word. Job's been severely afflicted. He's lost everything. And, verse 3, God says to Satan... He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. So, what's left? His health. Attack his health, says Satan. Then you'll see. He'll surely curse you to your face. Very well, says God but he's not to die. So open the last scene, scene four, Job's second test in chapter two, verses seven to 10. Poor Job is afflicted with festering boils from top to toe, and all he can do is to sit among the ashes as a sign of mourning and scratch himself with a shard of pottery. And if that's not enough, Satan uses Job's wife to tempt him, just as Satan used Eve in the Garden of Eden. Nothing was left for him but death. So why, says his wife, didn't he just give up and curse God and die? And what does Job say? Verse 10. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Clearly, Job's faith wasn't self-serving as Satan had said it was. He was proved wrong. It was far deeper than that. Job somehow hung in there, but like Canon Andrew White in Baghdad. And by so doing, He reiterates the key theme of this book, that trouble and suffering are not merely a punishment for sin, but for some reason unknown to us, they may be permitted by God. Job understood that God is not just a sugar daddy, but a father God who may allow trials to test the integrity of our faith or to discipline us and bring us to our knees till we know that he, God, is God and we are in his hands. But as we will see, it takes a long time of wrestling and debating to reach that conclusion. Briefly, in summary today, the book of Job begins by establishing the fact that God is supreme. He is in control. 
but the accuser is bent on driving an irremovable wedge between God and us. Satan may do his deadliest, but God is still supreme. He's still in control. The question is, will Job continue to be a real believer? The challenge for you and me is to ask ourselves, why do I serve and follow Jesus? Is my allegiance first and foremost to God? Am I committed to live in awe of him, whatever happens? All I know is that when our hopes are dashed and when our hearts are wrenched in two, when it feels that there's nothing left, God knows, he cares. And even though he may be silent, he's still there. Let's just pause and be quiet for a moment. Let's make our own personal response to the Lord. In darkness and in light, in trouble and in joy, in suffering and in pain, help us, Father God, to trust you, to serve you, and to continue to praise your name. Amen.